Let's bow our hearts just one more time as we come to God's word together, shall we? Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that, Lord, you are an incredibly gracious and merciful God. But, Lord, we thank you, too, that you're a God of justice. You're a God that we can't act casually regarding. Lord, we can't expect to get away with rejecting you and your laws and your statutes, your testimonies and judgments. Lord, if we treat these things as nothing, Lord, there will be a price to pay. Because, Lord, your laws and your ways are just. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom to walk with you, walking in the way. And, Lord, that you would give us the strength, Lord, to turn away from the temptations and the lure of the things of this world. And, Lord, teach us this morning from your word as we continue studying in this incredible account in the book of Hosea, Lord, how you dealt with and spoke to your people. Lord, stir our hearts. Help us to see, Lord, that this is just a reflection of ourselves. And so minister to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've said a number of times that the book that I enjoy most seems to be the book I'm studying at that particular time. And at the moment, it really is, Hosea. I'm absolutely loving this study. And it's maybe it's fresh in a way because a lot of the books we've gone through and we've taught, I've been kind of comfortable with and familiar. Some I've taught before. Hosea I've never taught through. And typically the minor prophets, they're at the end of the Old Testament. And, you know, there's a lot of history amongst it. And it's kind of an area sometimes we give a bit of a wide berth to. Um, but as we start to get into this, you just realize how rich a soil this really is. And so as we kind of sink our, our roots, our hearts down into this, I pray that you really are being blessed also. Now, we've again covered this, but just to remind you, we're dealing with the northern kingdom. That's the area that Hosea was speaking to, the capital of which was Samaria. Of course, the southern kingdom known as Judah, the capital being Jerusalem. The kingdom divided after the time of Solomon, and this individual by the name of Jeroboam uh, is, we'll talk about him briefly later, comes to the throne, and the, the north of the Lord promises him that he would bless him if he obeyed. Well, he didn't, and he gets this title, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And all through Scripture, as you read through Kings, Chronicles, every time he's mentioned, that's the little title he has, uh, and not a particularly good thing um, to, to have as a title. But Hosea now is speaking toward the end of the northern kingdom. They are ripe for judgment. Now we've gone through already looking in the first chapter. We see, of course, Hosea's call and God using his own life and personal situation as a model to speak to the nation. And then, of course, at the end of chapter 1, there's that restoration promise, not just for Hosea and his relationship, but speaking uh, in the bigger picture of Israel and the nation being restored. And that goes into the second chapter, God's warning there against Israel's unfaithfulness and the judgment that would come as a result of that. At the end of the chapter, once again, God reminds them that there is a future blessing, that God, even though Israel had been like an unfaithful wife to God, God was not going to give up on them, not going to abandon them. 
And then this incredible chapter, uh, it's just five verses, chapter three. If you remember, we studied it. It still, you know, rates to me as one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. So much in there as we went through. Uh, it's the plan of redemption, of course, as seen through Hosea's situation and then God's dealing with Israel. And then we get into this section that we're in now, which is God's controversy with his people. So God is really laying out the case of what is wrong. Why is Israel, why are Israel going to be judged? Why is God going to allow this? And as we go through this, uh, we started to see last time in chapter four, which was the only chapter we got through last week, uh, but the sins of the people, and then it goes on to the sins of the priests, the idolatry of the people, and then finally this appeal to Judah. And then that leads us into where we're going to pick up in a moment, the evil behavior of the priests, the people, and the royal families. It wasn't just one part of society. The whole nation had given themselves over to idolatry and rejecting God. As a result of this, uh, we go on to the promised judgments of Israel and Judah. So as though Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom, we find a number of times Judah is referenced in this as well. Um, but the interesting thing at the end of chapter 5, and we'll get there in a, a short while, is that God promises to wait until the time that they are ready to repent. And it's, it's an incredible prophecy uh, of what is still yet to come. That leads immediately into chapter 6. So there's this appeal to Israel to repent. And really it will be on the back of uh, what they're going through, the, the situation they find themselves in, that they turn to God. And how sad it is that so often people turn to God at a time of crisis. And of course God will welcome people with open arms even in those situations because God is a gracious and a merciful God. But how much we lose out on. There was a song I'm sure many of you know, I think it was Noel Richards, uh, or certainly Noel Richards sang it, um, Come Now is the Time to Worship. I'm sure you know the song. Uh, and there was a line, you know, but the greatest joy is for those that know him now, was one of the lines in that song. You know, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But the greatest joy is for those that get to know Jesus Christ, to fellowship with him, to walk with him now. Before we get to the rapture, before we get to the time of judgment that's coming, before we get to the millennium and the new Jerusalem, you know, for eternity, we'll be able to say, yeah, we knew the Lord. We walked with the Lord. The Lord strengthened us. The Lord took us through incredible trials. The Lord provided for us. The Lord delivered us. Chapter 6 goes on, and we see again the sinfulness of both Israel and Judah. Uh, and that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. We may get a little bit further. We'll see how far we get. Uh, then the wickedness of Israel unveiled in chapter 7. And then a warning to prepare for this invasion that was going to be coming from Assyria. Uh, again, because of the idolatry and because Israel had gone to other nations for help rather than going to the Lord. And it's this lesson of trust again, you know, let me say, you'll probably get tired of me quoting Oswald Chambers on this one, but if God is the God that we know him to be when we are closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. God is incredible. God is awesome. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. God sustains everything. God causes these incredible, intricate, complex bodies of ours to function. We, we have no control over our heartbeat or all the incredible things that go on within our, our system. 
You know, the way that when you sneeze, your eyes automatically shut to stop your eyeballs popping out and all kind of sorts of things like that. And then you look at the natural world and you see things like woodpeckers and how complex they are. How their tongues kind of go up and around the back of the head and, you know, they're really, really huge, long tongues. But they need to be because they stick these tongues out into the trees to get the creatures that they're, they're eating on and so on. But they've got this kind of glue on their tongues. It is amazing because it sticks, the insects stick to there, but it's of such a nature that it doesn't cause them, the tongues to stick to their mouth. You know, it'd be a bit of a problem for the woodpecker. They're incredible. And scientists have talked about this and, you know, they joke that, you know, it's one of the creationist things they love that. Well, of course it is because it just shows design. And you look at things like dolphins and you see how complex they are with their sonar system and everything else. And we see design all around us. We see God's brilliance. But that's what God's like. And, and so why do we worry? Well, it's because we get to that place of thinking, well, maybe God's not got this one covered. Maybe God's forgotten. Maybe God didn't see this one. And, and Israel are right there because in the situations, they've got problems with the surrounding nations, particularly Syria, just to the north of them. And, and so they, they go to other nations. They go to obviously Syria and they go to Egypt and elsewhere to try and find support rather than going to the Lord. You know, and it's great lessons for us in these things. And then we probably won't get to the, the, the latter part of the, the chapters there. But let's jump into chapter 5 and let's go through see how far we get. So the first seven verses, it's really this whole of the, the problem of evil within the whole nation. So hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, you house of Israel, and give you ear, O house of the king. For a judgment is toward you because you have been a snare on Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. So Hosea addressing the evil behavior of the priests, the people, and the royal family. Now, just to, to clarify that reference at the bottom, you've been a snare on mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. Uh, mitzvah was in the southwest of the country, so down at the bottom, uh, and then uh, Tabor was in the northeast. So literally, it's from one side, the, the furthest stretch of the country, from one side of the country to the other. These things were a real problem. It's like saying from north to south or from east to west, the whole country was given over to these things. It wasn't just one particular group. It wasn't just the government. It was the people. But it wasn't just the government and the people. It was the government, the people, and the priests. Those that should have been leading them and teaching them about God. Does that sound just a little bit like this country? It's not just the government that's corrupt. It's the people that are corrupt. And it's not just the government and the people, but it's the church in this land. The parallels are really quite stark. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter. Though I have been a rebuker of them all, God says. He's, verse 3 starts, I know. You know, God is omniscient. He knows everything. And he alone knows what we are really like. And he says, I know Ephraim. And, and that expression, by the way, we've, used, we've said it before, Ephraim comes up a number of times in this book. It's used as a soliloquy. It's, it's the idea is you use uh, as the expression for the whole. So speaking of the nation, so I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom and Israel is defiled. You know, it's the fear of God's knowledge and, of course, our accountability to him that drives the ungodly to reject him. It's because they don't like to retain God in their knowledge, as it says in the book of Romans. 
in chapter 1. They, they reject God because they don't like the idea that God is God, that God is in control, that there will be accountability and judgment. And so it's much easier just to kind of turn off the, the we'll take the batteries out of the smoke detector, turn off the alarm so we don't hear that noise. That's why so many people don't like going to church. It's not because they don't like the environment so much. I mean, people go to all sorts of social clubs and spend their time in all sorts of places. And church is not a bad place to be. There's, generally speaking, a nice bunch of people. I mean, certainly they're not here. But it's not just about coming together and meeting people. When we come to church, we're coming into the presence of God. And that's why so many people are uncomfortable. Because... When we come into the presence of God, naturally there'll be conviction because the Holy Spirit, John, John accounts for us, Jesus told us that when the Holy Spirit would come, he would bring conviction of sin. God knows. God knows all things. And people would just rather turn off God in their knowledge than come face to face with the reality that he is God. He sets the rules. And he's a just God. Verse 4, they will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. So notice, first of all, it's the doings. Uh, so their doings will not suffer them to turn unto their God. They, they love what they're doing. They've got so into their lifestyles and the sin that they're committing, the practices they've adopted. They don't want to turn from it. Do you know, it's often one of people's kind of uh, reasons for not wanting to think about God, not wanting to come to church or think about Jesus. It's because, well, all the things I'd have to give up. And that's often people's objection. You know, they, they like their lifestyle, they like the things they're doing, and they don't want to have to give those things up. Do you know, when I got married, I, I didn't go through a, a period of time thinking, oh, but when I get married, I'm going to have to give up all the things I used to do. You know, I could go out with my friends and we could go and get a kebab late in the evening. And, you know, and you, don't, you don't think that way because you're thinking of all that you're going to get. You think of this incredible relationship you're about to enter into. It's the same with the Lord. It's never about what we have to give up because those things actually pale into insignificance compared to what we're going to get. And that's the whole point. When we come to know the Lord, it's not that God says you mustn't do that and you're not allowed to do that anymore and you can't do this, you can't go there. It's like, I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to be with Jesus. What I'm getting is better than what I had. Albert Barnes, in his comment, he says this, it was impossible that they should turn inwardly while they did not turn outwardly. And that's a problem. They, they were so set in their ways that they didn't want to change. They'd kind of grown to love their sin. And the thought of giving those things up just was horrible to them. It's incredible because they've given up God, and yet they didn't want to give up these things that were not profiting them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. I think this is really quite a scary verse. You know, can there be a more frightening scripture than this? You know, because it's in the depth of their despair that they're calling out and no one hears. 
You see, notice what he's saying. They should go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord. They're still going through the motions. It's kind of like going to church at Christmas and Easter, that kind of thing, where some people do. Because they think that just kind of keeps them in touch with God and they're okay then and, you know, God will be all right with that. And they were going to the various festivals and celebrations and so on. And they were going with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord. They were going to offer sacrifice. But we're told that she'll not find him. God said, I'm sorry. I'm not interested anymore. You don't want to walk with me. You don't want to have a daily relationship with me. You're not just going to come and seek me and find me on the few occasions that you choose to do that. There was no real relationship. It was just religion. It was an outward thing. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children, and now a month devour them, or now shall a month devour them with all their portions. It's speaking of the, the speed, the swiftness of which the judgment was going to come upon them. Again, Albert Barnes says this, uh, the word is used of treachery of a friend toward his friend, of the husband to his wife, or the wife-husband. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you treacherously dealt or dealt treacherously with me. O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It's a quote from Jeremiah 3.20. Even God in his upbraiding speaks very tenderly to them as having been in the closest, dearest relation to himself. You see, even in judgment, you see God's grace, you see God's mercy. And now we get the next section, the coming judgment. But God will again await their repentance. So we read in verse 8, Blow you the cornet in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon after thee, O Benjamin. Speaks about some of these places before. Uh, Beth-Avon, uh, very close to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Uh, Beth Avon, uh, the house of vanity, and that's just the expression that should be used um, on purpose here. Rama, you're probably familiar, uh, another name for Bethlehem. The, the cornet is typically would be the chauffeur, I'm sure you've seen it, it was typically a ram's horn. And the trumpet, they were both uh, things that were used to sound alarm, they were warning systems to alert the people to get in behind the city walls and prepare for battle. And what the Lord is saying, or what Hosea is saying to the people, the Lord is saying through Hosea, is it's time to blow the trumpet. It's time to sound the alarm. And the reason for this, there was this impending invasion. Now we know it's referred to by uh, theologians and historians as a Syrio-Ephraimite war from about 735 to 733 B.C., Okay, now if you remember the year that Assyria came and finally took the northern kingdom captive was 722 BC. So we're counting down BC. So we're in kind of like uh, 13 years or so uh, of that occasion. So it's really getting close now. But this other war was going to take place just a few years from the point that Hosea is prophesying this. And what had happened was there'd been this alliance of Rezin, who'd been the king of Syria above them, and uh, Pekah, the king of Egypt at the time, Oh, sorry, king of Israel at the time. Uh, and they'd captured certain Benjamites border towns, uh, such as Gibeah, Ramah, Bethel. So these were uh, bordering on between Israel and Judah. And that prom- uh, prompted King Ahaz of Judah in the south to go for help. But where did he go for help? Not to the Lord where he should have gone. He goes to Assyria. Big mistake, not just 
as it proved to be for the northern kingdom, but also for the southern kingdom. Assyria then used Ahaz's request to sweep down upon Syria. That was in 734 BC. And finally, to come down on Israel in 722 BC. So it all leads to this. Um, so this move of um, Becker, king of Israel, moving against their brethren in the south and taking some of their cities, prompted the king of Judah to go and get help, which was Assyria, which leads to the northern kingdom being taken away captive. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. God's saying, I've not kept it quiet. This isn't a secret. I've told you very clearly what is coming, what's going to happen. The princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound. It's talking about the boundary stone. Uh, there's warning in scripture and not to do this. You know, property was very clearly marked out. And God is very clear about ownership and the rights of individuals to own uh, their own property and so on. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. So they, they were totally disregarding law and order and rules that have been established. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. The, the, the commandment in question there uh, seems to be the commandment that Jeroboam had put in place not to go to Jerusalem, not to offer sacrifices to God, but to serve these golden calves. We'll come on to that maybe if we get there, uh, that Jeroboam has set up. So he's saying that he willingly walked after man's commandment, not God's commandment is what it's saying. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth. Okay, so Ephraim, the northern kingdom, that's the reference to the north in general, as a moth. Well, if you've ever had a moth that's trapped in a wardrobe with clothes, you know that it can do a lot of damage in a very short space of time. We had some lilies in our garden um, a couple of months ago. And uh, as uh, we got to the this lovely sun, warm weather, the lilies, I just love lilies. They're beautiful. And they came up. But I noticed that the leaves were starting to be eaten by bugs. I saw some ladybirds having a nice munch on them one day and other things. Uh, and I, I know the slugs love them as well. I thought, I must put some slug pellets down. And I kept going in our house over a couple of weeks. And I think, I must do it. I must do it. And I never got around to it. And now all we've got is these stalks and nothing is on there at all. Everything, everything green on them. is All the leaves are gone. The lilies are eaten. Everything's gone. Same kind of idea with the moth. It just eats, it destroys. But it, with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, it was going to happen rapidly. It was coming quite soon. But then notice the house of Judah as rottenness. Now, if wood typically rots, it takes a while. And that's the, the idea here, that the judgment that was going to come upon the north was going to come quickly. But the judgment upon the south was going to take a little bit longer. But if you've ever come across a rotten piece of wood, you know it's good for nothing. It can't support anything. It's useless. And that's what ultimately what happens to the, the southern kingdom also. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Yareb. Now, that, that is a title, uh, King Yareb there. It seems to be a reference to Tilgath Pileser, the king of Assyria, begging him to come and help him, to assist him. It, 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 the, the title Yareb simply means great king. So Ephraim, the northern kingdom, goes to Assyria for help, just as Judah would do as well. Yet could he not heal you, nor cure you of your wound? For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. Interesting, again, those expressions. Yeah, that young lion's going to take a little longer to be battle-ready, as it were. 
But Ephraim, the Lord is going to be as a lion, prepared right now to take his prey. I, even I, I will tear and go away, and I will take away, and none shall rescue him. And then we get to this astonishing verse, verse 15. God says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Or the idea really is earnestly, that they will seek God with their whole hearts. But what a a staggering situation we've got. So given in the context of the coming Assyrian invasion, the prophetic overtones of this verse are very clear. But we have to ask the question, when did God leave his place? Because God is saying here, I will go and return to my place. When did God leave his place? Where is God's place? God's place is heaven. When did God leave heaven? Well, it's the incarnation. It's when God took upon the form of a man and came to Bethlehem to be born as a baby. God left his place. He came to this earth. When will it be that Israel are going to be in their affliction? Because we're told that it will be then that they're going to acknowledge their offense and seek God's face. Well, it's going to be at the hand of the Assyrian. Now, that's a title that's given to Antichrist on a number of occasions in Scripture. A couple of Scriptures there you can check if you want. Isaiah 10, verse 24, and Isaiah 14, 25. The Assyrian is a title that's given to Antichrist. And he, of course, we know already, is going to lead this incredible persecution against the Jews in this period of time that's yet to come that we refer to as the tribulation. Initially, he's going to seem to be all wonderful and a great charismatic political figure. He's going to set up a kind of a track and trace system, if you like, to use today's vernacular. Um, But it's going to be a system for buying and selling. And unless you've got a particular mark, you're not going to be able to buy and sell. Interesting, isn't it? The things that we see going on around us, preparing the world for this time. And he's going to allow this peace agreement to be established with Israel and the surrounding nations. But three and a half years in, he's going to allow Israel to start sacrificing at their temple, newly built temple again, but then he's going to stop it. And Israel is going to be forced to flee into the wilderness where the Lord will protect them for three and a half years. But then there'll be this huge multinational armada, if you like, that will be amassed, ready to go and destroy Israel. Because Israel are not going to play ball. Israel are not going to join in with the rest of the nations and the things that they're doing and the way they're going. And as a result of this, Israel will become utterly hated by all nations. And so Antichrist is going to lead this assault against them. And it will be at that moment in their affliction that they will cry out. And they will recognize, they will realize, no doubt they'll be reading scripture. And one of them's going to go, have you read what it says in Isaiah 53? Or they're going to look at some of these other incredible prophetic passages in the Old Testament, and they're going to realize that they're not just waiting for their Messiah, they'll realize their Messiah has been, that he died to pay the price for sin, and that he's coming back. And it will be in their affliction that they will seek Jesus Christ. Whilst this Assyrian is about to 
launch an assault against them, and Jesus will come and intervene on Israel's behalf. Interestingly, because, of course, the context, the immediate context here is that Assyria were about to come. They thought they were going to Assyria for help, but Assyria were about to come and lead them away captive. And ultimately, in the, that's like the dress rehearsal, the matinee performance, the real thing, in a sense, is yet to come. But that goes straight into chapter 6. Although we have the chapter breaks, we need to remember in the original there were no chapter breaks. So we go straight on, and then we have this cry from Israel. In the midst of their affliction, this is what they're going to say. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. There's no hint here that what the Lord has done has been unjust. In fact, the fact that they don't address it in that way would suggest that they realize that the punishment that that which the Lord has brought upon national Israel is right and proper and an an appropriate judgment for their sin. A number of times we read the expression, the Lord will give them double for their sins. That doesn't mean times two. What it means is the Lord will give them an exact likeness. It's like when you look in the mirror, you see a double of yourself. God will give them an exact likeness. All they have done, they will be punished for. But here they say, come, let's return to the Lord. For he's torn us, he will heal us, he is smitten, he will bind us up. And then this verse, which I think is incredible. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. We can't just move on and ignore this. There's some really interesting things we need to draw out of this. After two days, what what, what does it mean, two days? How long has it been that Israel has been in this predicament waiting to be revived? Well, almost 2,000 years they've been in this predicament. If we go from the time of Jesus, the time that the, their eyes were blinded, Luke 19 speaks of that time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they missed that day, that one prophetic day that God said that the Messiah would come to them. They missed it. And so blindness is pronounced upon the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. And so, for the last 2,000 years, Israel have been in this situation where they've been effectively estranged from the Lord. But there's going to come a time, as we've just seen, that they're going to return to him. And it says, after two days, he'll revive us. So it's interesting that it says two days, and we've had 2,000 years. Is there a link there? Well, it's interesting because in Second Peter... Verse uh, chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, some, of course, have tried to suggest that the days of creation were long periods of time. Well, that's such a nonsense. That doesn't work for so many reasons. We don't need to go into that in, de- in detail because we've got a great verse in Exodus 20, verse 11. It completely destroys that notion because it says that God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them in six days. End of. And God gives the nation of Israel that time frame, the six days to work, one day of rest. So it's very clear. So it's not talking about days of creation, but it is clearly a principle that, that God has laid down in his word, that God is outside of time. That to, to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And we read in Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in, the, in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. God, of course, is outside of time. 
Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, All time is as nothing before him, because in the presence in the presence, as in the nature of God, all is eternity. Nothing is long, nothing is short. Before him, no lapse of ages impairs his purposes. Do you know God is never in a hurry? God is never late. It's good to know, isn't it? Because often we're in the midst of a, a, a situation, and we kind of sometimes think that, that, that God has got tied up doing something, and he's a little bit late getting to help us. No, God's never late. His time is perfect. Let's just consider what we're looking at in this prophetic utterance in Hosea. Israel had been smitten and bound, if you like, for 2,000 years. We're told in the verse we've just looked at that Israel are going to live in his sight during the millennium. That, that's what we know is going to happen. That's what Scripture makes it clear. We know that's a period of a 1,000 years. And Hosea likens his 1,000 years to a day because he says, we will live in his sight the third day. Well, how long will Israel live in his sight? The millennium, a thousand years. So they'll live in his sight for a thousand years. So, just logically, if the third day is analogous to a thousand years, then we could easily conclude that the first two days also could be analogous to a thousand years. Which means the last two thousand years analogous to a day each. And then the millennium, likewise. And if it's perfectly with the creation model that we have, We have six days of work followed by one day of rest. Well, if you look chronologically in Scripture, the earth is about 6,000 years old according to the Bible. A lot of people have a problem with that. We can deal with that some other time. But according to the Bible, the earth is about 6,000 years. The millennium, which is just about to to follow, is going to be 1,000 years of rest for the earth. Six days of labor. The final day of rest, the final thousand years of rest. It's an incredible pattern. And this verse in Hosea chapter 2 really seems to fit in with that model. It's saying that Israel has been bound and smitten and blinded for 2,000 years, but for a 1,000 years, a millennium, they're going to live in his sight. Interesting scripture. Let's move on. Verse 3, Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. That was important for the produce of crops, that they had the the early rain in the year and then the latter rain, harvest time, and so on. Now we get into the the sinfulness of the nation, verses 4 through 11. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, so northern kingdom and southern kingdom now. What shall I do unto thee? Both of them, the same question is asked. For your goodness, as is a morning cloud. In other words, it passes real quick. And as the early dew, it goes away. I'm sure you've walked out of your house in the morning, you've seen dew on the ground, and very quickly, sun comes out, it's gone. That's what their goodness was like. Nothing, nothing lasting. Therefore, have I hewed them by the prophets? That's kind of digging out of rock is the idea. I have hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as the light that goes forth. God had tried to communicate to them through the prophets, through speaking to them. Nothing was getting through. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Let me just read you what Albert Barnes says in regard to that. He said, here he anticipates their excuses with the same answer wherewith he met those of Saul. 
when he would compensate for disobedient by burnt offerings? The answer is that all which they did to win his favor or turn aside his wrath was of no avail while they willingly withheld what he required of them. Their mercy and goodness were but a brief passing show. In vain, he had tried to awaken them by his prophets. Therefore, judgment was coming upon them. For to turn it aside, they had offered him what he desired not. Sacrifice without love and had not offered him what he did desire. That was the problem. God wasn't looking for the offerings and the sacrifices. He wanted a relationship with them, just as he wants with us. He doesn't want a religious experience. He doesn't want us to follow a set of creeds or dogmas or whatever. He wants a relationship. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. I mean, the idea is they've tried to deceive God. They've kind of played the game as if they were serious about their relationship with him, but they weren't. I mean, let me just pause and ask you the question. Are you serious about your relationship with God? Or do you try and deceive God? Do you kind of play the part? You know, we're really good at doing it with each other, aren't we? We've said so many times, you know, we say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, We don't normally say, I'm really struggling. I've got real turmoil in my heart. Because we know that if we said that, the other person would go, oh, it's other times. Now, we, we, we don't often open up and share how we really feel with each other. But are we like that with God? Do we try and hide from God what we're really feeling or thinking? You know, I'm reading through the book of Job at the moment. I absolutely love the book of Job. I think, in many respects, if I had to pick one book of the Bible to say it's my favorite, probably Job would be it. I just love the account of Job. Job just goes through these incredible trials, and he never gives up hope and trust in God. He never tries to pretend things are okay. And his friends try and offer their counsel and their wisdom and so on, and they offer their creeds and platitudes. And Job is like, no, you're wrong. I know what you're saying sounds right, but it's not right. And my experience tells me it's not right. And you can't tell me that every cloud has a silver lining because not every cloud does have a silver lining. You know, at the basis of life now, things are tragic. There's a problem with this world as it is. Even in Romans, we're told that that all creation is in travail. It's in this this kind of labor pains, looking to be delivered. No, Israel had dealt treacherously with God. They tried to deceive God. They tried to play the religious game. Please don't do that. Just be honest with God. You know, I've spoken again about Psalm 119. I absolutely love that psalm. Uh, and I'm kind of working on this, this kind of book study notes thing I'm doing at the moment. And what I love is the honesty. There's no attempt to try and make everything seem okay. Yeah, and there are times that we just feel like God is not listening. It's okay. There are times that God seemingly is not listening. I mean, the truth is he always is listening, but there are times that God goes into silent mode with us. Have you ever been in that situation with another that you don't know what to say, so you say nothing, and it turns out it was the right thing? Because sometimes saying something wouldn't help. And sometimes we have to wait. And the other person has to figure out what they're going through. God sometimes, by his grace, allows us to go through that. We go through trials and struggles and so on. Oh, God's never far from us. God never turns his back on us. Let's go on. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. I'll highlight the reason this is interesting in a second. Uh, And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. Now that word by consent 
is Shechem. Now, you may be familiar, Shechem was a town in Israel. It was a place where Jacob's sons um, and uh, Dinah, their, their daughter, had a little bit of an issue. You read about it in Genesis and a uh, real problem at the time. But it becomes one of the major cities in Israel. And what is interesting, it becomes, along with Gilead, one of the cities of refuge. Now, there were six cities of refuge. Uh, Kadesh up in the north, uh, the Golan, which is of course the Golan Heights, we're familiar with that area. Uh, Ramoth, Gilead, that's the one that's mentioned here. Uh, and then over the east side of the Jordan, Bezer, uh, the other one. And then Shechem, as you can see there in Hebron down south. So those are the six cities of refuge. The idea of these cities were if somebody committed a crime... But it was a genuine accident. So like manslaughter, they accidentally killed somebody by doing something. But they didn't intend, there was no malice there. They would flee to a city of refuge and they would stay there and they would be safe the whole time the high priest was alive. As long as they stayed within the city of refuge, they were safe. Until the high priest died. And then when the high priest died, they were forgiven and they were allowed to, to go outside the city of refuge. It's a great picture because who's our high priest? Jesus Christ. As long as we are within the city of refuge, we're safe. Until when? Until the high priest died. When did our high priest die? He died on the cross. And then we're free. What a great picture that is of the cities of refuge. But the interesting thing here is, and the reason this is brought out, is because Shechem and Gilead, the ones mentioned here, were cities of refuge. They're places where justice should be done. And they become places where no justice was being done. This is why they're, they're highlighted here. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is whoredom in Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he hath set a harvest for thee when I returned the captivity of my people. Let's go into chapter 7. We see the wickedness now. Again, this kind of gradually peeling back the mask, all the pretense and so on. Verse 1. When I would have healed, healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. It is as if God comes wanting to restore them. But realizes, of course, nothing's a surprise to God. But the way this is painted is as if suddenly God then realizes that the problem was far worse than they'd let on. This is like God peels back that surface and gets to their hearts. And the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood. And the thief cometh in and the troop of robbers spoils without. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Interestingly, Solomon makes that declaration that God requires an account of that which is past. God doesn't forget. God says, I remember all their wickedness. Now, their own things, their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. Their own doings, the things they were doing. Remember, we talked about the things they loved. They didn't want to give those things up. What we find now is that those things were now causing them a real problem. In the book of Romans, Paul asked that question. You know, what fruit did you have in those things of, of which you are now ashamed? You know, think back to things in your life. Not to spend too long thinking about it, but think about things in your life that you've done, that you regret, that you, you, you knew you shouldn't have done. And you look at it now and you think, how did that really help you? How did it bless you? How to improve your life in any way. All it did was bring just that feeling of dirtiness and, uh, and disgust at your own life, that you allowed yourself to do certain things or think certain things. There's, there's nothing to joy in those things. We don't rejoice. We don't look back and go, actually, you know what? I was glad I did that. No. And now the things that they were involved in, their doings have beset them about. 
It's all starting to come unraveled. This is the way sin is. It will lure you in. I'll probably mess it up, but I'll try again. It's a sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and make, it costs you more than you want to pay. There you go, that was it. Sin takes you further. No, that was it. I, I mess it up every time. But that's what sin does. It lures you in. It makes it, it seems so attractive, and then it gets you, and now you're trapped, and now there's no way out. It goes really right back to the beginning of this book of Hosea where we had that incredible account of how Hosea had taken this wife, this prostitute. She'd ended up absolutely destitute. She'd lost everything. She was being sold as a slave and Hosea goes and brings her back and buys her back because of his love for her. And that's God's love for us. And this is what's going on now. That Just as with the prodigal son, They'd gone after all the things they wanted to, indulging in whatever as a nation, realizing now that those things had not helped them, that their so-called foreign allies were nothing of the sort. They were just looking for an opportunity to pounce. Verse 3, they make the king glad with their wickedness. See, even the king, the highest levels of the nation, was quite happy to see the nation indulging in these things. And the princes with their lies. They, they knew what was going on. They're all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker who ceases from raising after he had kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners, keeping company with people he shouldn't have been keeping company with as a king. For they have made ready the, their heart like an oven whilst they lay in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night, and in the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. I mean, it's all about, you know, the, the picture is that, you know, this cake is being cooked, and the baker just falls asleep, sleeps through the night, wakes up in the morning, and what he was cooking is completely incinerated. I'm sure some of you have uh, tried cooking at times past, and you've uh, neglected what was in the oven too long, and you've gone back to it, and it's no really fit state to eat. That's the idea here. It says they are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. And that was the problem. Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is as a cake not turned. Let me read you what Ironside says about this. It It is in their unconsciousness of their true condition it is their unconsciousness of their true condition which this section emphasizes like a cake placed upon the coals and forgotten by the housewife till left unturned it is all burned on one side so they were quite indifferent to their actual state before god one side is burnt the other side is still okay the mass taking no heed to the prophet's warnings went carelessly on in their own way, taking it for granted that all was as it should be, when in reality everything was wrong. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. You know, just almost, just, just not wanting to acknowledge that things were not what they used to be. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. So they're looking everywhere to find someone to help them. And yet they don't go back to God. 
Again, just let's bring this home. Don't ever let this be you. Don't ever be in a situation that you go to something else, to someone else. You know, when you are in those times of conflict, internal conflict, don't go to something else to find release, find peace. Go to the Lord. Go to his word. Seek him. Those things of the world will never satisfy. They can never satisfy. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them and as their congregation has heard. Just going to read a quote here. Ephraim is like a silly dove without natural affection for him that has carried them in his bosom, has turned to Egypt then, uh, then to the Assyria for help when the hour of trial came. But the Lord loved them too much to permit them to fight anything stable in what spoke of the world and its vain pomp and show. So he would spread his net upon them like one taking a bird in a snare. He cannot allow those who are in a covenant relationship to go on in their sinful states. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me, destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Bows in Scripture often are a symbol of a covenant. Think of the rainbow. Um, It's a bow. It's a sign of a covenant. Uh, They are like a deceitful bow. It's like a covenant that's really not true because they don't really mean that which they've committed to. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They're going for help for Assyria, for Egypt, and so on, and none of that's going to help. Let's just round out with chapter 8. It's not a huge chapter. We'll just go through it. I'm just going to read this, uh, this quote. From this statement of the case, the prophet turned to the pronouncement of judgment. This he did by adopting the figure of the trumpet lifted to the mouth on which five blasts were sounded. That's what we'll see in this chapter. In each of which some aspect of the sin of the people was set forth as revealing the reason for judgment. The first blast declared the coming judgment under the figure of an eagle. The reason being the transgressions and trespasses of the people. The second blast emphasized Israel's sin of rebellion in that they had set up kings and princes without the authority of Jehovah and had made idols. The third blast dealt with Israel's idolatry. She had set up the calf of Samaria, which Jehovah had cast off and broken in pieces. She had been guilty of sowing the wind, that is, emptiness, and therefore she must reap the whirlwind, that is, the force of emptiness. The fourth blast announced Israel's alliances. She had gone to Assyria like a wild ass, alone, and her judgment was that her, sorry, and her judgment was that her hire among the nations had resulted in diminishing her. 
And the fifth blast drew attention to the altars of sin which had been raised contrary to light and by which sacrifice had been violated and therefore judgment was announced. That's from G. Campbell Morgan. Let's have a quick look at the chapter. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. I'm sure you're familiar. Many of you would have heard this used, this expression. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed my law. In other words, time is now up. We talked about earlier the, the shofar, the, the trumpets and so on being a sign to raise the alarm, to get inside your, your safe defense city. But now it's the time. This really is it now. The, the, the clock has stopped ticking. The countdown has ended. And it's below that trumpet. And it's, he shall come as an eagle. It's all the swiftness of an eagle coming in. If you've ever seen an eagle going for its prey, it's quite incredible. They just swoop down. And they just grab their prey and they're gone again. We went down to South yesterday with a kite. And we're not very good with flying kites, as we found out. But it was fun. But, you know, when, we, when, it, when it kind of got wrong and the kite was on a downward trajectory, then it come down fast. And uh, we, we tried to not hit people when we came close a couple of times as the kite's coming in. So... That's the idea that the trumpet, the, the eagle was, was coming in quick and this judgment was coming quickly. So now sound the alarm. Albert Barnes says, The prophet beholds the enemy speeding with the swiftness of an eagle as it darts down upon its prey. He goes on and says, The prophet says, Watchman were set by God to give notice of his coming judgments, Ezekiel 33, verse 3, Amos 3, 6. As the sound of a war trumpet would startle a sleeping people, so would God have the prophet's warning burst upon their sleep of sin. The ministers of the church are called to be watchmen. They too are forbidden to keep a cowardly silence when the house of the Lord is imperiled by the breach of the covenant or violation of the law which is where we are now in this country. If fear of the wicked or false respect for the great silences the voice of those whose office it is to cry aloud, how shall such cowardice be excused? Interesting. Barnes saying that the church, the leaders of the church need to stand up. They need to make it very clear what a mess we're in and how we need to seek the Lord. Verse 2, Israel shall cry out to me, my God, we know thee. See, knowing who God is, is not the remedy. There's a lot of people that know who God is, but they don't have that relationship with him. You know, James chapter 2, verse 19, James says that even the demons believe in God and they tremble. So just knowing about God, knowing of God, even going to church is not the answer. It's having a relationship with him, an abiding relationship. You know, can there be anything worse than presumed support in calamity only to find you are mistaken. And yet imagine yourself in some horrible situation, but thinking that it will be okay because we're going to be rescued. Only to discover that there is no hope. One of the things that uh, Joy and I were blessed with, Joy's auntie had um, read something in a devotional and had sent it through to us. And it was talking about the Chilean miners. You may remember a couple of years ago, or a few years back now, uh, they got trapped underground, and they were underground for quite some time. And it must have been really scary for them, you know, not knowing if they were ever going to get out of there, possibly thinking that that's where they were going to stay and die. Of course, they tried to hold on to hope. Eventually, word was got to them that the rescue team knew where they were and that there was a rescue attempt being mounted. 
And imagine the, the joy, the hope they had when they knew that there was going to be potentially this deliverance. It wasn't the end of it for them. There was still some time to go. But just to know there was hope. But imagine being in that situation and nobody knowing where you were. No hope whatsoever. That would be so, so scary. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. But God's effectively saying, sorry. Psalm 66, 18 says, if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear. It's not that God's not able to hear, but God just simply says, iniquity cannot come into my presence. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Nothing worse than a heart that is sick, that is so broken, so shattered irreparably because it has no hope. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. See, Israel had removed their covering, that protective covering, and now they were exposed. And this is the psalm that Sharon shared with us earlier on in our service. Psalm 91. This is verse 1. I encourage you to read the whole psalm. It's not a long psalm. It's a blessing. The psalmist declared that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. But they've cast it off. They've thrown away this privilege of being protected by the Lord. Israel has cast off that good thing, the protection from God, and as a result, the enemy shall pursue him. See, man's predicament is actually summed up in this verse because Adam abandoned that divine covering, the Shekinah glory that covered Adam and Eve originally in favor of fig leaves. They cast off the good thing, and what happened for Adam and Eve? The enemy pursued them. It's pursuing us still. Satan is still the god of this world. Not for much longer, but... Deuteronomy 28, 25 says, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. This was Deuteronomy 28, incredible chapter, prophetically speaking of what was going to happen to the nation. And it's saying, if they rebelled, this is what would happen. This is what we're, Hosea is highlighting. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out every one against them and flee seven ways. Sorry, let me read that again. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. Thou shalt be removed what a prophecy this is, into all the kingdoms of the earth. Hosea is going to say something similar in a second. Verse 4, They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold, they have made them idols, that they may be cut off. God just using this kind of picture now, that they've appointed whoever they wanted to be king. And, and princes, but they didn't go to God, they didn't seek him. And they've made these idols. And then it says, Thy calf, O Samaria, has cast thee off. It's interesting. They turned to idolatry and they've been kind of cast off by the idolatry itself. It didn't profit them. My anger is kindled against them. How long will it be before they attain to innocency? I'll just comment on that last line in a second. But Jeroboam the first we mentioned earlier made Israel to sin. He set up two calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel. I'm going to talk about him in a second. But I just want to come back to that verse, the last part of the verse before they attain to innocency. I just love this. You see the grace of God in the midst of all the judgment that's coming and all that God is speaking to them. It says, how long will it be before they become innocent? How can that which is guilty ever be declared innocent? Well, it's only if that guilt is removed 
to another. If another bears and carries it, and then the first one can be declared not guilty. Justice still has to be done. The price still has to be paid. And I just love this because it just speaks of God's grace. It speaks of redemption. Because it's saying, how long will it be before they can be declared innocent? And that is what God will do. But it took the death of Jesus Christ to make it possible. Just, just jumping back very quickly to First Kings. You can read this. This is the introduction of Jeroboam at the start of the divided kingdom. It came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way and he had clad himself with a new garment. And they too were alone in the field and Ahijah uh, caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in 12 pieces. Now that probably got Jeroboam's attention. He's wearing his nice new coat, really, really pleased with it. It's like, this is just, this is really good on me. And Ahijah comes, rips it off of him, and tears it in 12 parts. You can imagine Jeroboam, what are you doing? And he said to Jeroboam, take thee 10 pieces. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And I will take thee and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desires, and shall be king over Israel. And it shall be, now this is the key, if thou will hearken unto all that I command thee and will walk in my ways and do that which is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto thee. And I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. So God is saying to Jeroboam, I'm going to give you the ten tribes. I'm going to give you the kingdom. Trust me. And I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to bless you. But what a disastrous impact unbelief has. Because a little bit later on, after this division has taken place and Jeroboam has become king of the north, we read this in 1 Kings 12, verse 26, and Jeroboam said in his heart, always where the problems begin, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He was concerned that the people were going to go down south to the temple to worship God. And he said, if they do that, well, then David's going to get the kingdom back. No, no, God had already said that Jeroboam was going to have this kingdom and God was going to bless it if he trusted. But he didn't believe. He wasn't prepared to wait for God. He wasn't prepared to trust God. And it says, verse 27, if this people go up, to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto the, their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, Solomon's son, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Well, that wasn't what God had said. He's put his own spin on it because he didn't trust God. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to them, is it, is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. It's just like it is in Exodus uh, 32, 33, where they built the golden calf and said, well, this can be your God. We don't happen what happens to Moses. He's disappeared. But you, know, you worship this God. And Jeroboam does the same thing. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this becomes a real snare and a problem to the nation. Back into Hosea, chapter 8, verse 6. For from Israel was it also the workmen made it. This is the calves. Therefore, it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. God pronounces his judgment upon this. For they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. 
If so, be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Even if it does bring forth something, then it's all going to be eaten up by other nations. Albert Barnes says this, They shall reap not merely as they have sown, but with an awful increase. They sold folly and vanity and shall reap not merely emptiness and disappointment, but sudden irresistible destruction. They sowed the wind, and as one seed brings forth many, so the wind, penned up as it were, in this destructive tillage, should burst forth again, reinforced in strength, in mightier store and with great violence. Thus they reaped the whirlwind, yea, as the word means, a mighty whirlwind. But the whirlwind which they reap does not belong to them, Rather, they belong to it, blown away by it like chaff, the sport and mockery of its restless violence. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Hosea chapter 8, verse 8. Take note of that verse. Spoken somewhere in about 730 BC. And the literal fulfillment of these words is a matter of a historical record that spans about 2,700 years. Notice again, Israel is swallowed up and they shall be among the Gentiles. Well, Israel have been scattered around the world, Jews all around the world. Obviously, yes, they're starting to go back to the, their land, as God had promised, but a vessel wherein is no pleasure. The nations of the world look at Israel and there is no pleasure. In fact, overwhelming anti-Semitism. Hosea 8, 8, what incredible prophetic utterance. For they are gone up to Assyria as a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yeah, they've gone to get support from these other nations, Assyria particularly. Yeah, though they have hired among the nations now, I will gather them and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. Let me just explain that last verse because I think it's important. This is actually... Uh, I think Barnes uh, comments, he says, uh, so great shall be the burden of the captivity hereafter that they shall uh, then sorrow but little for any burdens put upon them now. In other words, what's coming is going to be so bad that what they're going through now won't even be compared to it, uh, and which they uh, now feel so heavy. The king of princes is the king of Assyria who said, are not my princes altogether kings? There's a quote from Isaiah 10 verse 8. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him uh, to sin. It's just simply saying they've, they've made these altars where they've offered these um, sacrifices to their pagan gods and their other uh, idols and so on, and they're going to realize that it was sin. It, it, they'll finally get it. I've written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrificed flesh, for the sacrifices of my offerings, and eat it. Now, part of the idea of the sacrifices, they were allowed to eat that which they sacrificed. Part of it was to be eaten, had to be consumed in a set time frame. But here, all they're doing is going through the motions. They're offering the sacrifices and eating it, but it says, but the Lord accepts them not. Their heart wasn't in it. Again, brings back to us, that which we bring God, never let it be out of a sense of duty. Oh, I hate that. You know, one of the things I've said, you know, when we came down here in 2012 as a pastor, you know, I said to the people at the time, you know, I never want people to do things because you feel you ought to do it. Do it because you love the Lord. If you don't want to do it, don't. If, you know, there's lots of things that need to be done to make the church function, but don't ever do it because you feel you ought to do it. Because I tell you what, the Lord will raise up someone from somewhere to do it if you don't want to do it. 
But you have the privilege of serving. And if you want to, do it for the Lord. Do everything you do as unto the Lord. That's the only reason to do it. Don't do it for me. Don't do it for other people in the congregation. Do it for Jesus Christ because you recognize that the debt he paid for you, you could never repay. And out of the gratitude of your heart, you said, Lord, what can I do? Whatever it is. That's the reason to serve. That's the reason for getting involved in ministry. That's the only reason to get involved in any form of ministry. Don't ever do it because you think, I'd like you to do it. Oh, I, 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 I find great joy when people want to serve. Not just because jobs get done. I, I, I find joy because I see people responding to the grace of God. You know, only ever do it because you love the Lord. Just one more verse to go after this, but just let me just say, you know, I remember years ago when I was doing the um, ministry down at Paul, I was living in Deal at the time. I would be part of the worship team at Deal. We'd go down, we'd set up, we'd play. Um, after the service, I'd pack all my gear away, load it in the car, say goodbye to Joy, drive three hours down to Paul, set the gear up, practice, make sure everything was working properly, lead the worship, teach, minister to people afterwards for a while, pack it all away again, drive home another three hours, get home typically about one, half one in the morning, get to bed, get up, go to work the next day. And people used to say to me, oh, it's such a big thing. And I used to, you know, it wasn't. It was a joy. I, I don't say that. I mean, kind of, you know, wasn't Barry wonderful? It's not, it's just, isn't God wonderful? I did it because I loved the Lord, because God gave me the opportunity to share his word with people. And it was such a blessing to see people growing. I had people sometimes come up to me with tears in their eyes. They'd never heard the word of God talk. It was such a blessing. It was for a season. It was what God did. And God used it actually incredibly as a preparation for ministry for what the Lord is now doing here in our midst. Such a blessing, though, to serve the Lord. And God always gave me what I needed. And I used to think, people used to say about, oh, it's a big sacrifice. I think, no, it's not. I get to drive down there in an air-conditioned car, and I get to listen to worship music on the way down there. You know, and typically on the way home, I chat to Joy just to keep me awake so it stop me falling asleep. You know, and we had a nice chat. It was good. And, you know, it was a real blessing. I enjoyed doing it. It was lovely. Paul used to walk everywhere on foot, got beaten, dragged out of the town, stoned to death. That never happened to me. I kind of figure I got it pretty easy. No, no, the point here is that don't get into religion, into service, into things you feel you should do. Do it because you love the Lord or don't do it at all. But if you do love the Lord, well, then just ask him for ways that you can serve him. It's such a privilege. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifice of mine offerings and to eat it, but the Lord accepts them not. Now, Will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins? They shall return to Egypt. And this is going to be what happens. Jeremiah will speak a lot about that. Of course, they were told not to go back to Egypt, but they end up going back there. For Israel has forgotten his maker and buildeth temples, and Judah has multiplied fence cities. Oh, it looks great on the outside. They've got fence cities, they've got all this protection, but ultimately they've abandoned their one true protection, the one under whose shadows and whose wings they should be finding shadow and protection. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. There's possibly a reference here to Ezekiel 38, 39, of what is also yet to come. These are things that did happen historically, but there's more that's going to be coming on Israel. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father.
We just thank you for your word, but thank you, Lord, most importantly, for the personal application of these things. Lord, we we thank you for the grace, the mercy, the love that you have for your people Israel, the way that you will never abandon them, that they will repent, they will turn to you, and you will restore and heal them and forgive them of their sin because of the blood of Jesus. But Lord, we pray that our lives will be genuine before you, with no pretense, and that, Lord, that you would give us a heart to serve you, Lord, not out of a sense of duty, but just joy and willingness to serve because of the great God that you are. Lord, may our lives not be full of hypocrisy, but sincerity, loving you. We ask these things this morning and for your blessing as we go through this week ahead. Until you come, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.